0: I'm Eileen Mansara, co chair of PE Communications Committee. For those of you joining for the first time, Moments That Made Her is a production of the Private Equity Women's Investor Network, also known as PE WIN. We are the preeminent organization for senior level women investment professionals in private equity. PE provides its members with opportunities to network, share ideas, make deep connections with peers, and empower each other to succeed. Our mission is to increase the profile of women in private equity, and our members represent institutions with over $3 trillion in assets under management. To learn more, please visit pewin.org. The host of Moments That Made Her is Kelly Williams. Many of you know Kelly is the founding chair of PEWIN as well as the founder of the legendary private market solution business known as Customized Fund Investment Group, which she and her team grew to manage $30 billion of assets under management until she let it sail in 2014. She is the CEO of the Williams Legacy Foundation and serves on the board of Greenbrier Companies and chairs the board of the Smithsonian American Art Museum. Thank you for joining us for today's episode.
1: Welcome to Moments That Made Her. I'm Kelly Williams, your host and the founding chair of the Private Equity Women Investor Network and the CEO of the Williams Legacy Foundation. I am thrilled to have a really extraordinarily interesting guest with us today, Alison Nankovell, who is the incoming chief executive officer of the Mars Discovery District. We're gonna do something a little different this time because I think what she is doing is so incredibly fascinating. I'm gonna ask her to do a little spotlight and tell us what the Mars Discovery District is and kind of what the thinking is behind it and, and who the, the key stakeholders are. So, Allison, let me turn it over to you and welcome.
2: Thank you, Kelly, and thank you for the invitation. Mars is a complicated beast to explain, so let me try my best. Mars stands for Medical and Related Sciences, and Mars Discovery District is a unique innovation platform, in fact, the largest urban innovation hub of its type in North America, that uh, was created in around 2005 by a combination of corporate, philanthropic, and government funding to bring together a unique set of uh, individuals who are fundamental to the proper functioning of the innovation ecosystem. So it sits at the heart of where the University of Toronto and the University Health Network, which is the core of um, an academic area of research in downtown Toronto. And it's unique in the sense that it has 1.5 million of real estate space that it owns and manages, in addition to having a full suite of advisory services it provides to startups at all levels as well as having an internal venture capital fund and a capital advisory side. And what's particularly unique about the real estate side is it has both office space for corporates who want to be near those startups. And the startups, of course, who have offices or shared space in Mars, but equally it has wet labs and quite a significant number of them to support the growth of life science startups and particularly the biotech area related to AI drug discovery, which is a growing and important area for the advancement of uh, health sciences. So it's a unique place because it brings together researchers, uh, startups, academics, corporates, VC funders, and it really is an ability to drive both thought leadership as well as that convening and partnership that comes from having everybody in the same space.
1: Wow, incredible. I spent a fair bit of my career tangentially touching these spaces because I did a lot of regional investing and trying to ignite the ecosystems in various regions of the country, those that often aren't given enough credit for the innovation that they do spark here in the United States, and working with technology transfer departments of universities and working with the venture capital community and trying to get them to talk together. But the idea that you have all of these tools in your toolkit is really fascinating. I, I already know that I want to have you back and hear more about what's going on and how it's been going. But would you share with our listeners a little bit about how you came to this role and what your prior role was?
2: Yeah, no, happy to, because it, it, I don't think I look like the typical person to end up as a CEO of Lars, because in fact, my world for most of my in private investing career has been as an LP. I started off more on the international side and in the private equity world as an LP working for Canada's Exxon Bank called EDC. Most of my career was doing international fund investing in Asia. I spent 15 years in total in Asia, 12 of them living in Beijing. And part of that was because I happened to be married to a senior level diplomat who was a China specialist. And so we sort of scheduled our lives to fit to have an ability to live abroad and and kind of moving myself into becoming an Asia expert, and particularly a China expert on the investment side coincided with his focus. So I went from being uh, an investor in the earliest years of Asia private equity, uh, to then joining Ontario Teachers as an LP and managing similar types of Asian fund relationships, to then moving back to the North American market and then going entirely the other direction to the venture capital world which was a very different take to have been working with buyout and be working with large end and then move to the smallest funds at the Business Development Bank of Canada, where you're working in investing both in funds and directly into technology companies across clean tech, IT, healthcare, working with a lot of emerging managers as well as developed managers in that capacity. It really has been a very different sort of role as an LP where there's so much more mentorship involved and working at that smaller end. So it's been a fascinating journey um, because I felt the adventure of being on the Asia side and being at the beginning of a market at the opening of that was fascinating, but so has been working on the emerging manager side with those smaller managers who are equally excited as they move into developing their platforms in the North American market.
1: Yeah, I would agree. I mean, again, that's a place that's near and dear to my heart and have experienced a lot of success there. And it's often an area that I think maybe makes LPs a little nervous. But once you learn how to analyze the risk, I always say, people look, you know, there's not inherent risk in the fact that it's a woman managing it or person of color. Sometimes that becomes the emerging manager basket that people fall into. The markets are the same, right? It's mm-hmm. really just analyzing what does it mean to be a newer manager? Are they new investors or is it just the first time they've run their own fund? Again, I just love the fact that you have this unique toolkit that you'll be able to use. I can't wait to have you back and to talk more about it. And it sounds like you've had a fascinating career, but I I always like to start at the beginning. And so I'd love to hear a little bit more about how and where you grew up.
2: Well, I've basically grown up not far from where I'm living now in Toronto. I, I grew up in the suburbs of Toronto in a very large, loving family, the youngest of four girls. I was a very kind of sporty kid, a curious kid, one who loved to be out and about. And I think because I was the youngest, I remember largely being raised by my sisters rather than by my mother, which I think is pretty normal for large families and still a very close group with my sisters now. So I'm, I feel very fortunate in that respect. I've also been very lucky that I had a very large extended family with cousins and aunts and uncles. So to me, the happiest things in life from my formative years is just having these enormous family get-togethers where you have 40 people of spilling over of aunts and uncles and cousins. And, you know, those are wonderful moments. And, you know, I think that sense of stability that you have, that if you're fortunate to have that when you're young, makes you that much braver when you go off into international markets because you feel so secure in who you are and in the sort of love you have at the beginning that going off in those early years to China with my husband with a baby in tow and not entirely knowing what we were getting ourselves into and learning the language I felt like it was a wonderful adventure to do because you know you had such a sense of yourself from being fortunate to have great parents great siblings and i just think you know that's that's a really strong foundation for anyone building a career
1: yeah, I agree. I grew up in a very similar way, not with a large nuclear family, but a large extended family on both sides. And on my mother's side, we're Italian, and so of course if you're an Italian child, this the sun rises and sets on you. And so you come out with incredible confidence because you're being told how fabulous you are all the time. Right, right. And I remember when when I was in college and decided I wanted to spend time abroad and go to live in Japan my parents were like, oh, oh, sure, dear, of course you're going to do that. I'm like, no, 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 really, I'm going to do that. Um, But I do think that having that confidence, having a family that always really Mm. believed in me and thought I could do anything, I, you know, it didn't even occur to me that I couldn't do it. They all waited with bated breath to hear reports back from Japan and hear what was going on. So, uh, and I'm actually surprised we didn't run into each other more. I worked a lot in China as well, but we'll talk more about that. So, At what point did your career path start to take you into the investment world and and particularly into private equity?
2: Yeah, it was a bit of a fortuitous thing because I started off on the banking side with the Canadian Import Export Bank, EDC as it's it's called. And so my work originally when I joined them was on the business development side, working with the Chinese banks. I came into the, the side to work with the China market. I was posted as their chief representative for China having spent an earlier stint there with my husband's first posting where i was working for the economist intelligence unit group so i had a background of china analysis writing on the chinese economy came in and sort of switched to banking and so it was really as edc started to develop an investment program internally and they said well listen if we're going to do that we're an international you know oriented financial institution we should be investing in asia and other jurisdictions in emerging markets in addition to whatever we do in the north american market so I just had the opportunity to be on the ground up as EDC started to build out its investment platform. From the beginning, it was uh, very much sort of private equity funds and um, co-invest. But the co-invest at that point was restricted only to Canadian companies. We were a little less brave about trying to do co-invest directly into emerging markets. But it was a great opportunity, as I said, because we had A chance quite early on as a lot of the 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 largest canadian pension fund cpp was just opening their office then others to work alongside them in some of the most formative gps that were being created in the asian market so we uh, were original investors in the first iteration of fountain vests you know one of the sort of primary china gps we did the same with kadara which um, also is probably one of the most well-known indian private equity managers when we we worked with other groups, everything from IFC to a Citibank to Asian Development Bank to U.S. pension funds, it was a really interesting time because our program was quite broad in its mandate, and so we would touch base with quite a lot of different types of LPs. And the fact that I was living there meant that I had way more time to get to know the GPs um, than others, right? Who fly in and out, having learned to speak the language. You had time to really develop that sense of where you wanted to spend time and build your portfolio. So it was an interesting but fortuitous step simply because the program got created.
1: So let me dial back a little bit because, um, you know, did you grow up knowing that you had an interest in finance? Did you have parents who were in finance? What was your first job? I, I think it's always interesting to, to learn how women find their way. Mm. To a finance career because we aren't often socialized to go in that direction yeah no that's
2: an interesting question because no actually my my parents my mother was sort of worked in media and my father was a school teacher most of my siblings were much more interested in writing and like finance and business simply wasn't part of our household i actually fell into it because i had an interest first in journalism when i was in school but after doing a sort of a general year of study at the university of toronto I went into engineering. I lasted about six weeks in engineering because I was the only of one of two women in the class at that time. And I just felt so unwelcome. It was an extraordinary feeling. And I, I, I you know, I don't, I kind of regret that I didn't tough it out, but I remember one of the second days, somebody giving me a map to show me the one woman's washroom in the entire building, um, because that's, that's what it was like at, wow. in those days. Right. And so I said, You know, this is probably not for me. And I switched over to business and economics and that's where I stayed for the rest of my undergrad degree. And I was very happy in that. Right. And especially on the economic side, I think of myself very much as a sort of a macro thinker and a macro economist. And I think it wasn't a big step to be interested in finance and macroeconomics as I said, to sort of think about, well, international business is interesting and international business leads you to banking and then banking led to private equity. So I think those types of things are really, really helpful.
1: Mm -hmm. Well, so fortuitous, it reminds me a little bit of that uh, fabulous movie, Hidden Figures, where there's the, you know, the one bathroom for the woman who's basically propping up the entire space program. Thank God for all of us that she stuck it out because I'm not sure we would have gotten Neil Armstrong back without her. But, um, So as you think back on on that career, and again, you've had such an interesting career, um, were there some defining moments that you think led you to pursue or step into leadership roles?
2: I, I think what was fortunate for me is that I had a chance to be in a very interesting market at a key time to learn a lot about it, having been early into the China market and bring that insight back. And combine that with then subsequently working back in North America. And by the way, it wasn't just in the China market. While I was based in Beijing, we did deals in India. I was traveling all the time there, Southeast Asia. So it was kind of a very fairly good feel for the overall Asia market. And those skill sets were very much in demand. If you think about the sort of mid 2000s to late 2000s, that was a very hot time in the market people were building out their Asia private equity practices. And I know that was what um, Ontario teachers was very interested in, right? To have that opportunity to go into a role where you are managing significant important commitments that they make to major GPs in the market because you had that time on the ground in an emerging market and you have a sense and confidence of what that market is like and your ability to do due diligence and feel comfortable in decision-making, which is hard to do if you're constantly flying in and out. So I think that sort of vantage point of having that early on in my career gave me a leg up in some of that. And then I think subsequently moving on from, from there, um, you know, it's it's been about the desire I've always had to work on new initiatives and think out of the box. So later on, when I came back to Canada and was working in venture capital, I Was brought into the Business Development Bank of Canada to set up a 1.25 billion dollar venture program because I had some, I had a lot of fund formation experience by then, and you know that gave me a chance to work with government, who was giving us a special account to manage this. It gave me a chance to work with thought leaders in the venture market. We worked closely with people like HarbourVest, with Northleaf Capital, others participating in this program, and I think once you get a chance of that, you're seeing more as someone who can lead because you're given projects, you execute against them, you deliver against them. And people think, wow, okay, so let's find something else hard for Allison to do so she can move on and do something else that needs to be done as we build out our portfolio.
1: I wonder if you had a similar experience to the one I had. You know, I I worked in China a lot. I was in Beijing a lot, uh, particularly working with CIC. And one of the things that I think surprised me and surprise a lot of others were how many women were in leadership roles? And I think it was something most people don't expect. But I'd be interested in your perspective on that.
2: Actually that's a really good point, Kelly. I I was thinking about that just the other day because people always used to ask me, you know, it must have been so hard to be in China as a woman. And I said, no, it wasn't actually at all. There's quite a lot of women who work in finance. Now, you know, it was probably harder to be a non-Chinese woman in the sense that, you know, you had to convince people that I can speak Mandarin and conduct myself in this market. But beyond that, you know, because finance is a relatively new industry in China, it was dominated more by women at the mid-managerial level because the areas of prestige in the traditional Chinese economy were heavy industry, engineering roles. It wasn't finance. So those roles were dominated by men. But newer industry areas, whether those are consumer, those are service areas, finance, had a huge opportunity for a lot of very talented women coming out of university to go into those roles. And so the preponderance of women was much higher in China in those roles as compared to,
1: you know, what you would see in North America for finance. You know, that's, that's a great insight. I never really understood that that was maybe the impetus for it. I, I always thought it had something to do with it. coming out of the communist construct where where maybe there was more equality. or uh, But that makes much more sense. <laughs> what you say makes much more sense to describe it. It was really my first experience ever of walking into a room where there would be entirely a group of women across the table from me.
2: Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. I noticed that incredibly. And that morphed from the banking into the beginnings of the, pri- the, the local private equity and venture capital industry, because there are a lot of women far in advance of in North America who are founding their own companies and starting really interesting funds. You think of someone like Kathy Hsu of Capital Today, right? There were women doing that in a way that simply wasn't happening yet in North America. So it's a very interesting uh, differentiation.
1: Yeah, I would agree. Well, we're going to take a quick break and we will be back to my conversation with Allison.
3: We
0: would also like to take a brief break to thank P.E. Wynn's founding sponsors, Kane Anderson Real Estate and KPMG, as well as our platinum sponsor, TPG. If you're interested in sponsorship opportunities, please contact us at info at pewin.org. Now back to today's guest.
1: Hello, listeners. This is Kelly Williams, and you're listening to Moments That Made Her. I am so excited about this conversation I'm having with our guest today, Allison Nankovell, who is the Chief Executive Officer of the Mars Discovery District. So I want to ask you a question I I ask all of my guests, which is, has there been a time in your career when you've been particularly made aware that you're a woman? And and I guess I mean it probably not in a positive way. You know, again, we're talking, we're just talking about the fact that you spend a good deal of your career in in, uh, Asia where there are Really, are surprisingly large number of women in the finance world, but is there anything that stands out to you?
2: Yeah, I'd say that it would be in coming back into the North America market and particularly into the venture market. I think that's where I found it. Oh, there may be different cultures here you know between genders in how things are done in in the venture capital world. It's interesting i you know. I think we all know that there's quite a lot of women in general in the North American market who are LPs. And at all parts of and generally in larger organizations, right, where there's often a lot of structure about how recruitment happens, how promotion happens. But venture capital if you think about it, especially on the GP side, is a very small partnership based business. In the early years when I came back to the North American market from China, it was still very male dominated. And so and equally um working even on on the the LP side coming into to um, you know the Canadian Business Development Bank, it was really noticeable that all of the direct side was all men, and there were just women on the fund side. And so again, it was more LPs who were women in within the bank. And if you looked out into the market and your choice of GPS to be investing in. They were primarily all male. There was here and there some junior female partners, but very few who actually owned the JP or co-led or played any kind of senior role on the investment committee. So that's what I first noticed because the, the language is different when you have this disproportionate balance between men and women. And the way I would see deals being judged, having been a senior member coming in and you're listening on investment committees, you're seeing how deals are being judged. And especially on those deals where some of them might be women-led startups, the questions are just different. And I found it very interesting that there truly was a cultural difference in language that was, in some cases, a judgment that made it a harder bar for women to get funding and a harder bar for a female GP to get funding. You know, it's so subtle. You didn't sort of See it at first, but it truly was there, and I think there's been a great reckoning and progress from there. But it was it was interesting that my first sense of gender differences came from coming home to this market as opposed to being overseas.
1: It's it's interesting. It's something I talk about a lot because when when we talk with women who are stepping out or thinking about stepping out to start their own firms, one of the challenges. Uh, is that they've not had the chance to develop the same depth of track record that their male counterparts have, either because they haven't, within the partnership, been allocated the same number of deals to work on, or their deals haven't gotten approved at the same rate right. that men have. As you say, it's the language, the way deals are challenged, it's the right. w- nature of the way you kind of gather um, that following to get your deals approved. So I agree, and it's something we work on a lot as we counsel women about, you know, thinking about stepping out and starting their own firm.
2: Yeah, and I think the work, Kelly, that, that you and your organization and so many others who've been part of of building that true community of women investors, both from the LP and GP side, as well as all the intermediaries and, and, and advisors is really critical. Women would be before without a network to help them guide through the difficult parts of that. It was just so instinctive for male founders or for male GPs to be seeking advice from each other. And it's much more recent for women to be able to do the same and find that they can find peers who genuinely have an understanding of what they've been going through and are able to provide that value and trusted advice.
1: Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's exactly it. I keep saying, I was talking about it today with a group of win members and saying, look, we have to have all those conversations that the guys are having. We can't be shy about it. It's okay to talk about, you know, wealth creation. It's okay to talk about, you know, bonuses because the guys talk about theirs because how else are we going to know if we're being treated fairly, right? So- I know you're, gosh, you're taking on this amazing new role, but I wonder if there's something you point to in your career to date that stands out as a special moment or a particular high point.
2: Well, there's been quite a lot, and I feel fortunate that way. One of, course, the most special ones was my time being able to serve on the board of, of Institutional Limited Partners Association, the ILPA. Two years on the board, two as chair, I had the great privilege of joining when there's just so many extraordinary LPs on that board, including Neil Randall, who heads up private capital at Texas Teachers, and then his subsequent to, to his departure, Scott Ramsauer, but other people, Joe Topley from OTPP when he was there, John Hershey at Oregon State, and so many great people around the table. And of course, having that ability at a very interesting juncture over the, you know, I just, job- I just left the board in June of last year. That's through COVID, pre-COVID, through COVID, just after COVID. Very interesting times. So many issues. We dealt with diversity, equity, inclusion and trying to set some templates, grappling with the beginnings of how we should think about ESG and what we ask of our GPs, issues of continuation funds, how do we deal with this in terms of LPs, in terms of having the ability to properly assess these in a reasonable amount of time, given the wall of continuation funds that were coming at us in the, the 2021 time period. So it it was great collegiality and, and collaboration to think through these things, which were of strong interest to all LP. So that to me was a really meaningful experience. In life, when you have things that you're either proud of or that you feel meaningful, they're often sort of things that are sitting in a bigger context, but also in a smaller context. So in that bigger context, I would say it was having the privilege of working with with ILPA on the board. On the smaller context, working in my own market here in Canada, it's been able to do some seriously interesting impact work, most recently with the indigenous community in Canada, where we have, we have created new funds that has empowering Both indigenous investment teams, but also bringing capital into indigenous entrepreneurs, both on and off reserve, who previously would have had no ability to have their businesses funded. So these are the kinds of things that I think I look back and I say, you know, these these are things I'm proud of. And I'm hoping, you know, as I'm stepping into this role at Mars, obviously, to be able to do some of those things and certainly be very continuing to be very interested in the impact side.
1: I know from my own career, you're so busy and you've got your head down and you can't even imagine putting another thing on your plate. But sometimes when you say yes to other things, they become the most uh, rewarding thing that you do. And so I would agree. I mean, the ILPA is just extraordinary. I, every interaction I had with them was really terrific. And we partnered on a number of things over the years. And there are some really terrific people around the table there. Yeah. Um, so one of the things I always like to talk about with people are, obviously, we've all had successes, but we also have faced failures, however you want to describe it. But are there things that you would point to where you'd say, look, it didn't work out the way I had hoped, but I learned something from it or something really meaningful came from it? Um, is there anything you'd share with our listeners?
2: Well, I have, like everybody, my share of failures. <laughs> yeah. Um I think some of them were more on a sense of judgment. I've had my share of investing in GPs who turn out to be utter disasters, partly because it might be a GP removal issue. It might be the partnership completely busted up. And you did not see in advance that these individuals simply couldn't work together. So I've had that happen to me both in an Asian context as well as a North American context. And they're very painful. They're very painful to come back to your investment committee and explain. Why this didn't work out when you took a chance on somebody that you wanted to extend help to try to get something new off the ground and it doesn't work out. And I think that's a really important thing to understand because it's hard at the best of times to to launch a GP. And even if you're the most well-intentioned, it's it's a very difficult thing to get all sometimes partnerships to work out or to get the thesis to work out. I've had disappointments where the, the depth of understanding of partners how to work together wasn't there. The focus of the investment thesis wasn't there. The other area where I've had personal disappointments is earlier on in my career, maybe not understanding how to work with other colleagues in the way to get the best out of everybody in a team, especially when you're working, you know, under, under trying busy, difficult circumstances. Um, I, I would say I have learned a lot through my mistakes of, of seeing when, you know, I haven't been able to connect as well as I wanted to with a colleague or with a direct report, to be much more mindful of that. Because of that, I feel like I'm a much better leader now and am so much more focused on culture because if you spend the time on that and you are facing critical things, either from an individual perspective or work perspective, the team just has resilience to get through. And that's just a really critical thing, um, especially in, you know, what is now a volatile time. It's not like any of us um, don't have challenging things in our portfolio to manage. Um, Having the stability of a team that trusts each other, that respects each other, I think is just really, really critical.
1: Yeah, I agree. I, I was fortunate to have a boss early on in my career who demonstrated that and said, you know, often the most challenging thing you will do is managing the person that's the most difficult, but it's probably the thing that will make you the best manager because you have to learn how to navigate that. And And I'm very much of the view that life's too short. You have to really have people around you that you can work with. You, w- you want to make sure you're not having people who are just, you know, yes women and just right. everybody you have kind of group think. It's, there's so much value to having people who think differently, but at at the essence, everyone needs to have a, the same value set, I think
2: yeah, I think that I think that is really true, and I think it's funny how the investment community, I would say has been late to thinking about this in a more strategic way, um, you know as compared to other organizations, but it you you find it now because of course the you know people want the best talent in their organizations and they want to have enough, as you say, differentiated conversation of people who actually are prepared to disagree or to debate to ensure they're making the right decisions. You know, an investment committee or or a team that isn't able to challenge, including senior members of that team, is very dangerous from a risk management perspective.
1: For sure. I mean, I do worry a little bit in the the culture we've created where everybody's very right or very wrong and we're not trying to bridge the gap. I've actually sponsored at my college something called the Forum for Constructive Engagement because I think it's at the college level that you learn how to have conversations with people of different viewpoints in a respectful way. But we do need to teach our young people how to do that because I don't know that we as adults are doing a good job of modeling that these days, at least not in the broader media.
2: Well, if you're anything like me, you're trying to manage it at least at your dinner table with your grown children.
1: For sure. For sure. Okay. Um, well, I want to move to one of our the the fun really fun parts of this, which is our lightning round. I'm going to ask you a couple of questions and and get mm. your responses or reaction. Um, the first is, what is a great book you've read or listened to recently? Uh so a
2: good book that I just finished was one by Dr. Norman Doidge on brain plasticity called "The Brain That Heals Itself." That seems a strange thing to be reading in the investment world, but as somebody who has a lot of interest in healthcare and technology coming together to help with healthcare, including generative AI and the need for us to be using AI for drug discovery, it was a really interesting book.
1: Ah, Wow. Sounds like a good one. I would love to read that. So what's your cell phone wallpaper?
2: Oh, always a picture of my cottage from the dock looking out at Lake Muskoka where our cottage is. I have never seen better sunsets anywhere and I never miss a Canadian summer because of that.
1: Ah, wonderful. Yes, find your happy place. Um, If you had a career other than private equity, what would it be?
2: So I would either be, I think, a novelist or a playwright. Uh, Probably have gone the way of my more creative sisters. Love that. Are you a dog or a cat person? Definitely dog. But Ah. having grown up with a lot of cats, I then was a late convert to dogs. So I can't say I haven't been both in the course of my life. Yeah, no,
1: me too. Me too. Uh, I'm I'm with you. What's the best piece of advice you've ever been given? I
2: think advice that it seems strange to say, but I had a, a very dear friend who passed away about a year ago. And he always used to say to me, in difficult situations. You know, Alison, everything is just like high school. And I always found that very, very helpful because you just looked at a complex situation. You thought, well, this reminds me of difficult things when you're fighting in high school or you've got one group over here and one group over there. And it would kind of make you smile and sit back and say, this is resolvable. These are just groups of people who need to reconcile and come together in very difficult situations, either at work or in a negotiation. I always found that that just made me think, yeah, you know, what what you go through in high school is learning to deal with negotiation and conflict resolution when you're an adult working in a professional context.
1: Right. I think the other thing probably embedded in that is it's never as bad as you think it is. You know, when you're a teenager, every crisis seems like the worst thing that could ever happen. And of course, with perspective, you realize like, okay, the fact that. Joe didn't ask you to the dance was not the end of your life. Um, And I think that's one of the things I've learned over my life is that it's never as bad as you think it is. No, agreed. Getting that context and being able to
2: sit back with some perspective, looking at a problem is an acquired skill
1: that you really have to keep honing during the course of your career. Absolutely. Well, my final question is, what's one thing we don't know about you yet?
2: Oh, that's a good one.
1: I think it's probably
2: that um, I was a competitive gymnast in high school. Not as successful as I would have loved, but I did win provincials for the uneven bars. That was the end of my career, but I loved to coach. And I coached gymnastics all the way through to university because I love the sport.
1: Wow. So you could do a handspring for us right now or? Well... Well, some version of it. Yeah, probably. Oh, good for you. I could good not. I never could. So this has been such a fantastic conversation. You have a standing invitation to come back. I can't wait to hear more about what you're doing in your new role. And I want to thank you, Alison Nankavell, for being an amazing guest today on Moments That Made Her.
2: Well, thank you, Kelly. I enjoyed the discussion immensely.
3: Thank you for joining us for today's episode of Moments That Made Her. I'm Scotty Wardell, co-chair of the PEWIN Communications Committee. As a reminder, the content in this recording is for general information purposes only and does not constitute advice. We give no assurance or warranty regarding accuracy, timeliness, or applicability of any of the contents of this recording. This recording is provided as is and PEWIN expressly disclaims any and all warranties expressed or implied to the extent permitted by law. Except where acknowledged, the copyright and all intellectual property rights in all material in this recording are owned by P.E. Win and our affiliates and should not be reproduced without our prior written consent. Other organizations or brand names used within this recording are for identification purposes only. The content set forth in this recording may not be sold, reproduced, or distributed without P.E. Win's prior written consent. Any third-party trademarks, service marks, and logos are the property of their respective owners. Any further rights not specifically granted herein are reserved. Thank you again for joining us today, and we hope you tune in for another episode soon.